I want to start with, I believe that much of the problems we're facing today is because we as individuals have refused to stand up and be responsible in a very direct way. And so that the footprint we leave is a constructive, not a destructive one. Part of the problem is that it's very easy to take a look at the obvious culprits, the greed within the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industrial complex, the military industrial complex, the, uh, the food production complex, banking, the credit card companies, the, um, the insidiousness of, of our foreign policy, how we imprint with the World Bank International Monetary Fund on other countries. There are no shortages of villains, but I consider this only part of the problem, more, in fact, to the issue I believe the average American is equally responsible for where we're at today. And I believe that we have raced to the bottom in, in acting as victims, expecting someone to fight our battles for us, and then disguising our behavior by going off to meditation retreats, enjoying yoga, and a hot yoga. If it's hip enough, then I must go do it because all my male and female friends are sweating to the oldies and gee whiz. Or let's go have our wheatgrass, but let's not change our temperament when we have our wheatgrass. I look around at both Democrat and Republican presidential candidates, baby boomers with only four exceptions, and I see people who are only willing to affirm an unequivocal position uh, to a point where it doesn't cost them votes. But rare is the person, the few to exist, across the board that are, not, that are not afraid to stand up for things knowing that that will get them not to be elected, or certainly not to be accepted as the Republican or uh, the Democrat candidate. Uh, an example, Dennis Kucinich, who was not afraid to say, as we all should have said, get out of the World Trade Organization, get out of GATT, get out of NAFTA. This is destructive to the working American. Stand up to China and say, you can no longer expect to have a trillion dollar trade surplus and we a trillion dollar trade deficit because we're willing to look the other way while you arrested nearly 900,000 Falun Gong, abuse your own citizens, uh, turn the other way when it comes to child labor abuses, give us defective products, be the number one country in the world at pirating everything you can pirate, have no uh, sense of ethics about dealing with people, and you give us a billion to two billion dollars a day, so we're beholding to you, and therefore we will look the other way. It takes courage to say no to that, because we are addicted to debt, we are addicted to compulsive buying, we are addicted to taking our entire sense of self from the external environments from plastic surgery to the McMansions, from the SUVs, and then assuaging our guilt by going to see a Inconvenient Truth or a, um, a Michael Moore sicko, but never once asking, why aren't we staying well to begin with? What is the solution when everyone has universal coverage but no one is preventing the conditions you need coverage for or seeking natural non-toxic solutions even as an option to get out of it? Why aren't we saying the hard things that need to be said? We have lost our capacity for constructive anger. We have lost our capacity for constructive passion. We have become indifferent and passive, and yet we'll shop in a Whole Foods health food store, which I believe should be boycotted, 
And this morning on a program on KPFK, I asked a person, give me five reasons that you would consider not to shop in a Whole Foods. He could give me none. So I said, let me give you one, that these monolithic stores have put out of business all of the small mom-and-pop health food stores that were idealists, who could tell you about homeopathy and Ayurveda, who could tell you why colon cleansing was important or which herbs might help your immune system, who would sit there because it was a passion of love, not to make a profit, because most of them didn't. They barely survived. These were the ones supporting local organic farmers and supporting a movement back to organic standards, who had the first books of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring when mainstream America was boycotting it, and she was taking a thumping. They held it up. Who provided you with a form for Pavla Roll and Dr. Christopher? That was just one reason. You've put 80% of the small health food stores out of business when you go into a Whole Foods. Now, that's one. Give me another reason you shouldn't stop and shop in Health Foods. He couldn't. Why? He was lazy. And yet, when I told him that when you choose not to find solutions, when you choose not to probe deep enough, that is merely an excuse for a life that's not probing deep on any issue. Can you renounce being a Democrat? Can you renounce being a Republican and stop aligning yourself with ideologies instead try to align yourself with principles that have a higher spiritual connection? And the answer is no, we cannot. And that's why Hillary Clinton will be the next president. And my God, how pathetic are we who will go through this dance and charade as if somehow this means something. And when I saw this debate last night, it was absolutely abysmal when someone says, NAFTA, yeah, it needs to be corrected. Corrected? What are you going to do when everything about it was a, sh- a sham? It was only for the people who benefited the corporate America and the offshoring, uh, outsourcing of our jobs. And yet they're in front of the very people that they promised to protect and honor, and they betrayed them, except for two people. Only two said no. And one was Dennis Kucinich, get rid of it and start looking after America's interests, not as isolationists, but in a proper and fair way. So I'm looking at the baby boomers. And I'm saying, go see the movie Patty Chavsky produced, which is, my opinion, is one of the greatest films ever. And yes, get angry. Get angry. Get passionate. I don't give a damn who doesn't like my attitude. I like my attitude, and the only reason that you don't eat DDT today is because other people got angry enough to commit themselves to change. And if you think that sitting around and singing Kumbaya and rubbing your navel and rubbing your first chakra and meditating to Krishnamurti is going to make you a better person, it isn't. With self-actualization, now this is a direct challenge to the baby boomers. You created the problem, you are going to create the solution, or there will be no solution. And if we wait till another committee, because ask anyone, and you, how do you know someone's lying to you when they say, we're going to have a committee look at that? Yeah, and is this the same committee that looked at Gulf War syndrome and told 400,000 sick and dying GIs, 32,000 who died, there is no Gulf War syndrome, you won't be covered, and this was the Clinton administration's uh, group? Another committee, we don't need any more committees for anything because these are nothing more than excuses to keep things going and not to upset the people. Now, that's the first part of my statement. Here's the second part. I told you it's a long introduction, but just to give you a large canvas, which uninterrupted, you can share your points of view. But here's what's making me angry, and I'm pissed, and I'm telling you I'm pissed, not to you, to the contrary. I'm honoring your... Your word's coming back at me. But I'm one American who's not afraid to get angry and tell people off. Now, who am I telling off? I'm telling off every one of the members of Congress. Why? 
because why aren't they making the environment, not just global warming, but all the other 67 parts of our environment, an important issue? Why aren't they banning artificial fertilizer that's causing dead zones of 1,000 square miles or larger than the state of Connecticut, in right at, excuse me, state of Vermont, right at the Gulf of the Mexico and 114 other dead zones around the world? 90% of the major fish are fished out because of greed. Why haven't they stopped corporate, uh, corporate welfare, $700 billion? That is enough by itself to give universal health coverage to every uninsured American and have a surplus left over. Why are they not why are, why are they not walking away from the World Trade Organization? Why have they not stopped the World Bank that leaves the most lethal footprint on every country it touches? instead of privatizing gas and water and electricity, where these people, the Democrats and Republicans, both supported, every presidential candidate supported the World Bank. Well, why don't they go into Brazil and see women who cannot turn on the electricity because they can't afford it because they've been privatized, or go to a place in, in uh, Ecuador where they can't afford the water because they've been privatized through the World Bank's structural adjustment and its cronyism with its special groups? Why haven't they expose the Federal Reserve for what it is. Why haven't they stopped credit card companies from charging more than 4% where people now can't live because they're so in debt? And instead of saying, stop all foreclosures, if we truly cared about each other as a country, if we truly cared, we would not allow another human being to be thrown out on the street. We would say, no, banker, you're rich enough, you you will not throw that person out on the street. That's a human being you're throwing out on the street. Those children you're throwing out on the street. Do you think any of these presidential candidates give a damn about this? No, because they haven't stopped it. Don't tell me. Please do not insult my intelligence by trying to tell me they don't know about the problems. Foreclosures, stop. Stop this nonsense. Let's, let's get every American so when, if you're sick, you don't have to go through the corrupt, absolutely banal insurance industry. You will be covered. You walk into a hospital, it will be law. You must be treated. No more of a person having an emergency going to an operating room or emergency room and dying because no one would treat them because he didn't have the insurance. Has it happened? You bet it's happened. What kind of country are we when my generation, my generation, allows this to happen? And don't tell me in the comfort of your secluded little apartment, your co-op overlooking Park Avenue, how proud you are, how much money you make, how important your assets are, how smart you and snug you are out on Long Island in a pathetic excuse called Five Towns or any place else, that somehow you have a right not to be involved in that because it's not your issue and not your business. You talk about isolation. We are emotionally and spiritually isolated, even though we're supposed to be an open society. Far from it. And why don't we stop this nonsense of allowing corporate America to get away with murder and not have to pay a single, single day in jail or a public apology for killing people? Last year, 780,000 Americans. I have in front of me Pfizer's record of how much they paid into the billions of dollars for criminal acts, and yet not a single person in Pfizer spent a day in jail, not a single reputation destroyed, and to the contrary, they make more money in bonuses. What kind of country is it? You can kill 100,000 people with Vioxx, 100,000 people that didn't have to die, and you get a bonus. Is there anything wrong with that scenario? I can't be the only human being on the planet who sees something rather perverse in people who are in the know, hip and progressive, Democrats and Republicans, who will work for a company that allows people to die as a, the absolute result of their products and no responsibility, no change. If we had courage, we would have presidential candidates say we will pass laws in Congress 
that will take away the corporate shield of indemnification. So if it can be shown that you've created any product or service with any foreknowledge that will do damage to people, you personally will be held accountable, no longer allowing hundreds of thousands of corporate employees, boards of directors, lawyers, and officers to get away with murder. And also, what about the idea of stopping all lobbying, all special interest groups? It either is a democracy or it's a lottery. Right now, it's a lottery. You buy your way into office. And, or you get people who pay for you your trips so they have access and then they write the rules. What does it mean when 60 Minutes does this expose that we had already done in two specials showing that $100 million was given in campaign contributions and they got a $500 billion Medicare program out of it for the pharmaceutical industry and they actually wrote the 1,100-page law, including paragraphs that excluded anyone from being able to get a cheaper drug through the government's agencies. What does that say about the American public when they say, uh-huh, yeah, well, let's wa watch WrestleMania. Well, if you've got the time and energy to watch American Idol, if you've got the time to go get a fat McDonald's, you got the time to go and watch pornography, you got the time to chill out on weed, then by God, you ought to have the time to realize that you're responsible for this. These people are simply laughing and looking and spinning because you've refused to stand up and have the courage to be politically incorrect, to get in someone's face, get damn angry, and say, I'm not taking this anymore. And if, what about protecting a small American farmer? What about looking at our infrastructure? What about the fact that, we, that what we've spent in Iraq could have built every bridge, every tunnel, re, uh, help New York City with $7 billion to do a real pure water system, that the garbage we have now that we say is pure isn't, and so we could at least live in a country where we didn't have to worry about another Katrina or a mine collapse or a bridge breaking down or another water main break in New York or this morning having subways that are backed up and people not getting to work. What does it say when we don't give a damn about our own infrastructure because corporate America doesn't want to have any of its profits reduced? And what kind of profit is it when it's profit off profit, off profit and meaning making money off money instead of making new jobs? We're not making new jobs. We're not making new companies. We're looking at like hedge funds and corporate Wall Street uh, equity ventures to how we can make money from money. That is what I'm concerned about. And I believe that we as individuals, not groups, not committees, not giant movements, not waiting for Ralph Nader on a white horse to come down and gain momentum with all the Nader Raiders, because that isn't going to happen. What can we do now to take back our lives, to take back our rights, and live in an ethical, honest, decent, healthy, humane, and spiritual way. That is the forum. That is the issue that I'm offering you. Please start anywhere you want. And please understand, my passion is not towards or against you, but rather against the issues that are out there and not being addressed at all on any level. Your thoughts, please. Well, um... I've done a lot of radio interviews, but I think that is the uh, the, the most comprehensive uh, presentation of of uh, what's wrong with America and and uh, sort of modern society generally. Uh, it was very elegant. Thank you uh, very much. I let me make two points: one uh, historical, and I would say contextual. 
and the other to just address the question of what people can do, uh, because I think there is a lot that people can do, and I think there's a lot that people are doing. The first is I think it's just very important to understand contemporary America within the context of the rise and fall of imperial systems. Most Americans don't really understand that that America is now standing as a colossus astride the globe with more comprehensive power in more categories of power than any empire in the history of the world, whether you analyze American power politically, militarily, scientifically, technologically, economically, or culturally, we dominate almost every category of comparison. And even though there are a lot of problems with the American edifice, uh, there are a lot of challenges to American power, I think it's undisputed, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that we stand as a major imperial power. Now, the reason why that's important is because historians talk about the, the imperial arc of empire, that empires rise, empires hold dominion, and empires fall. And one of the things that happens at the apogee point of an imperial system is that as the empire extends its margins and becomes more and more extensive, there's a highly paradoxical phenomenon that takes place, uh, classically represented by Rome, where power, as it's extended across uh, territory, gets concentrated back in the imperial capital. And uh, it happens not only politically, but it also happens financially. The more powerful an imperium gets, the more power and finances are concentrated around the throne and among a governing uh, elite. You see that happening in the United States. You see, for example, uh, beginning with Franklin uh, Roosevelt, what Arthur Schlesinger calls the imperial presidency. Uh, We just saw uh, over the weekend that a democratically controlled Congress gave to President Bush and Attorney General Gonzalez even more extensive wiretapping and email access than ever before without warrants. That is uh, predictable when an empire gets to the point of, of stasis and at its apogee moment. The other thing that happens, which addresses much of your uh, analysis of public apathy, is that what builds an empire is a very deep sense of civic virtue and sacrifice what we would call the Puritan ethic in this country, but it's gone by many other names as various nations have emerged, gained power, and held dominion. But one of, again, the paradoxical functions, as power concentrates in, say, Washington and Wall Street, as the rich get richer, the general person on the street begins to exchange the notion of civic virtue for entitlement because there's no longer the basic equilibrium in the system that is perceived to be either fair or uh, 
perceived to be worth the effort to try to change the system. So one of the things that I think all Americans need to understand is that whatever personal action you make or I make, it's happening within the context of an imperial system that it's reached its apogee moment and is beginning that long, inevitable collapse um, into the dust of history. And when that happens, it's almost impossible, except for in very few instances, for the public, the public to regain any sense of civic virtue. What has to happen, and this uh, uh, addresses uh, my second point, what, what's happening <clears throat> is that the, the collapse of the American imperium is happening, is occurring within a much broader civilizational rearrangement. And what we're experiencing at this moment of, of collapse of civic virtue is, a, in a very strange way, the emergence of a, of a new value system. And it's this new value system that I would like to address because of your remarks um, against people that are going to health food stores or Whole Foods or doing yoga, because I think there's something much more fundamental going on. If you went back a thousand years ago in European history, there was only really one value system that, system that governed the civilization. It was a traditional value system. It was Christian. And a traditional value system, which grips Judaism and Christianity and Islam, the three Abrahamic religions, but also is more extensive around the world, is any, any value system that's based on either a person or a book or an event in the past. For the Jews, it's Torah. For the Christians, it's Christ. For the Muslims, it's, it's, it's uh, Muhammad and the Koran. Then beginning with the Renaissance, culminating in the Enlightenment, there began to emerge in the 15th and 16th centuries in Western civilization a new value proposition that harkened back to the, to the Greek civilization, but basically was the assertion that value could be determined by human reason alone without recourse to any person or event or a book in the past. And that was the birth of modernity, um, the notion of the separation of church and state, the notion that an individual has the right to make up his or her own value propositions. Well, if you think over the last 2,000 years that the value proposition in Western civilization has only changed once, you get an idea that, that values are, are much more like the climate than the weather. The reason why there's so much concern about global warming is because it's the change of the climate not just weather systems. And when the climate changes, everything changes. And when a value proposition changes, everything changes. So when the Enlightenment began to emerge, um, the very uh, balances of, of the culture were shifted. And we entered into the 20th century and, and finished the Second World War with basically 50% of the American public embracing a traditional value system and 50% embracing 
a modern value a modern value system. But what began to emerge in the aftermath of the war, Second World War, was the emergence of a third value system that first was statistically insignificant, but has grown now to be representing basically one out of three Americans. Um, roughly 30% of the American population. In Europe, it's roughly 35%. It's a value system <clears throat> that is characterized by three component parts. Number one, the people that um, are in this new value system, called by Paul Ray, the sociologist that's identified it as cultural creatives, are people who are very focused on spiritual development and, and personal growth, but they're not religiously dogmatic. One of the new phenomena in, in our generation is the separation of spirituality and personal development from religious orthodoxy. And that's a fundamental shift in values for um, millions of people around this, uh, this nation. Secondly, this new value system has embraced more of, I would say, a systems approach to reality as opposed to a focus on a single priority. One of the characteristics of the moderns is because they're rational, they go after the bottom line, they uh, are motivated by profit, for example, in a corporate uh, a term, and nothing else matters. That's what you get with Pfizer, that's what you get with General Motors, with Microsoft. These are all representatives of a modern uh, mentality. The cultural creatives are people who embrace technology and affirm the free market, for example, but only within the context of environmental uh, protection and community uh, nurturing. So, for example, uh, cultural creatives are the people that will pay more for an environmentally kosher product. They are, in fact, the people that go to Whole Foods. What you say about Whole Foods is, in fact, true. Many of the small health food stores have been put out of business. But the other side of it is it's an indicator um, of how pervasive this new value system is of people who are actually thinking about the food that they're eating. Um, Twenty years ago, Whole Foods would have been a practical impossibility because the value system supporting alternative medicine, alternative foods, organic foods was simply non-existent. Now, with the growth of this new value system, you can have a Fortune 500 company that basically is giving people um, uh, relatively cleaner food within the mentality of people realizing that's important. Thirdly, the, 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 the new value system is one that emphasizes non-ideological, community-oriented decision-making in politics. It's what Paul Ray calls the political north. More and more uh, of Americans are not only disenchanted by politics, the cultural creatives... Uh, constitute 60% of the uh, swing voters, for example, in this country. They don't see their values represented by either the Republicans, who are in the grip of the traditionalists, or the Democratic Party, who are in the grip of the, the uh, modernists. Hillary Clinton is a classic example of a modernist. She's motivated by one thing, and that is power and to be elected president, and she will make any compromise, uh, which she's in the process of doing, which I don't need to go into, in order to gain that objective. She 
doesn't have a value system that that calls upon her to integrate what she knows with the office that she desires. And um, so uh, the, 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 the cultural creatives have been not particularly active in either the Republican or Democratic parties, but, and this is the important part, they've been hugely active in all kinds of activities. And what constitutes these, this emerging value proposition, these cultural creatives, they're not the baby boomers. They're all the people that have participated in the great social movements that have helped to shape the United States and Europe, uh, for example, since the Second World War, the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, the feminist movement, the gay-lesbian movement, the anti-globalization movement, the anti-nuclear movement, uh, the, all the people that have been engaged, if you think of all the sacrifices that were made in the civil rights movement of the black people of this country who had under great threat of personal duress still not to go to the back of the bus, still to go up to that uh, coffee counter in a white-only restaurant and to march in Selma, etc. That took a huge shift in values. And so when you talk about 60, 70 million Americans now embracing a new uh, value proposition, you're talking about all the people who've, who've changed their values and gone out into the streets over the past 50 years and actually tried to make a difference. Paul Hawken just came out with a book in which he said that after the Second World War, there was probably roughly 200 nonprofit organizations and NGOs in the world. Now, 50 years later, there's upwards of 10 million NGO groups around the world that are, um, are doing everything from watching the WTO to watching the, the war in Iraq. Uh, and so while on the one hand, what you're pointing to is entirely accurate, the the opposite is also true. There is an unprecedented level of citizen activity around the United States and around the world. It just is not being channeled through the instruments of power that are so dominated by traditionalist and modernist interests that the, the, that the, 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 the groups that are active don't see any kind of constructive reason or way um, uh, to make a difference. And so um, we're at a, one of those exquisite moments in history where the world is deconstructing. The United States as the great imperium is falling. The major corporate and political interests seem to be much more powerful than they are because the, the, the great paradox of, of, of the United States right now is the United States has become the greatest nation state in the history of the world right at the moment when history is moving beyond the nation state into the era of globalization. So that distinction between globalization 
integrating planetary culture and a nation state trying to stand against planetary culture is simultaneously exaggerating American power and the corporate interests, while at the same time it's undermining it. And all through what's happening, there is a, uh, an extraordinary renaissance of citizen activity that I believe um, will, in 20 or 30 years, irrevocably change the landscape of this country, even as the Renaissance did uh, in the 15th and 16th century. Very few Americans remember the great crisis of the 14th century, as the historians call it, where the, the Catholic Church collapsed, the medieval order collapsed, there was a population collapse, there was the Black Death that wiped out 25% of the European population. You ask the average American whether they remember very much, they, there's a vague collective memory about the Black Death, but very little else. What people will remember almost universally is the Renaissance. And I believe that we're in that kind of a period where, where the destructiveness of the old order is uh, horrendous, and we will pay a price. The Imperium will fall. But in and through it, the global culture that's emerging and the new value propositions that are emerging, I believe, are going to reshape global culture just as inexorably and just as inevitably as the Renaissance reshaped Western civilization 500 years ago. Well, I appreciate your insights and your overview. I would like to step back for a moment and readdress two issues, if you would, please. And first, I'll, I'll give you a, a briefer uh, overview. We were the baby boomers, let us put it back, we're baby boomers who we were the generation that caused the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the human rights movement. We were the ones being arrested in front of the South African embassy. We were the ones who fought for uh, banning DDT, MSG, and baby foods. We did so much good because we believed we could do good. We came from an idealism. We came from understanding we are spiritually, we're spiritual beings living in a physical body and united with one another. I grew up never thinking that a person whose skin was darker or lighter was any different in who they were as a spirit than me. So race wasn't an issue for many of us. Now my concern is that when you do go into a Whole Foods store, yes, it is important that people be able to make healthy selections, but I believe that we have to have a larger context in which we buy something, support something. I would rather buy something in a small health food store that's 100% organic than in a Whole Foods that's only marginally organic, a small percentage organic, support a local farmer rather than a a dole who is now taking over uh, with lower organic standards. I would rather buy a pair of sneakers, not from Nike, that exploits that, but rather from a company that honors the workers in a third world and provides healthy conditions. I would rather not live in a gated community if that gated community had to destroy a forest to be there, but rather get people moving back to communities and creating communities where you're living in balance with nature. You're not raping it. You're not exploiting it. Where you set standards, universally conscious people setting a standard that we will live in this environment, but we will use natural energy. We will not use pesticides. We will not cause this environment to feel as if it's been raped and put a synthetic template of our civilized needs over a natural and organic environment. That is one of the problems we have, i.e., supposedly progressive 
conscious, spiritual people doing a meditation on a cliff in Southern California without asking themselves, why are we building this here? What's the likelihood this is going to slide into the ocean? What's the likelihood this is going to be wiped out by the San Andreas Fault crack that's going to come in the next 20 to 30 years? Why not move to a place where it's not going to be Arizona, it's not going to be 12 states where there's no water? So I'm suggesting that even the people who did do something, and good for them, and I respect that, who are doing something, but they're doing something, and here is my rub, they're doing something out of context to the larger spiritual unification of life. So if you run into a room and do a heated sauna, there's nothing wrong with a heated sauna. Good for you. But if the reason you're doing it is because it's a trendy thing to do and all your other friends are doing it, then it's the wrong thing to do. If, you're, if the reason you're having a wheatgrass is because it's you know what everyone is taking and not because you really want to cleanse and rejuvenate the body, then what you do becomes less significant than why you do it. So I'd like to see people who don't run off to, you know, another DPAC, you know, uh, $6,000 for a weekend retreat, but rather say, why can't I take a retreat this weekend into the woods with my family and live close to nature without all the creature comforts and see if we can come to some understanding of our role in this, in this dance and delight of, of unity. I'm more interested in someone who would have small footprints and do the following as individuals, knowing that there are other wonderful individuals in whatever term you call them, a creative, a renaissance person or a creative enlightened person, a, a, a creative uh, a, a renaissance person who is not, not eating any uh, meat, uh, eating no fish eating nothing with a heartbeat or a face. That's a conscious effort. And that means that 80 billion pounds of, of fish will not die in Latin this coming year as they died last year. We will also not wear excess clothing, meaning if I don't need it, I don't buy it. So that way, you're only consuming what you need, and that slows down the excess exploitation of the environment for something that is not fundamentally important to stop working by a clock and see what is important in your day where you spend quality time with yourself, seeking your real needs and, and fulfilling them, and the loved ones who are so cherished that they've given you the sacrifice of their time. What greater gift to give another human being than your time? My goodness, don't we appreciate that. And yet look how many people today will be together but live separately for most of the time and not even join each other unless it's to talk about the conflicts or crisis and the dramas in their life instead of the joys, the past, and the, what you could create together. Think of the children that are on kitty cocaine today. Eleven million. My generation put them on that. No one else did. My generation. Why? Because we couldn't say no and we felt guilty except saying yes. So these are some of the things I'm saying we could do, but we're not doing it in the context of looking at where we should be living, what we should be doing, the work we should be doing, and how much is finally enough. Because you go to one of these spiritual retreats, half the people there are very rich, but they don't have happy lives. They don't, ha they don't have healthy minds, yet they'll stop. But on the way to stopping at a Whole Foods, they're going to buy meat there. They're going to buy sugar carbohydrates. If you squeezed everything unhealthy out of a Whole Foods, you're down to a little 2,400-square-foot health food store that might also have a sense of a greater in a greater sense of completeness in your life. And you're going to have that job or you're going to end up causing your liver damage and kidney damage. I'm saying let us not do something as tokens and piecemeal. Let us have the courage and the power to live a complete existence in an authentic way. And as Krishnamurti said, don't, don't be concerned. Look at the rock you're picking up that won't step on your foot 
but you're preventing it from stepping on another's foot. Let's be so concerned about the needs and welfare of other human beings that we won't walk by a homeless person. We won't drive through or try to stay away from southeast Los Angeles because we don't want to get robbed or mugged or raped. Let us be concerned about what's going on in that. Why kids are joining gangs? Why senior citizens are eating cat food? Let us commit ourselves also in the context of our awareness to raising up the consciousness of other people because corporate America is not going to do it. Hillary Clinton sure as hell not going to do it. And the others are not going to do it. We can do that, and we can do it under the radar. I am so confident, I am so encouraged by the passion of individuals who have committed themselves to living in a proper context of life that I'm absolutely optimistic as the empire falls. We are not falling because we have disconnected from that, that hubris of the empire. Your thoughts, please. Well, I think, again, you're right, I, but I would caution that sometimes the perfect can be the enemy of the good. You know, Chekhov had a great line in one of his poets, uh, poems where he said that it's only drop by drop that we squeeze the slave out of ourselves. You know, human... Yeah, but he was a manic depressive. He's Russian. <laughs> Russians like, he, he's Russian. Russians and Chinese both end up with fatalism at the end of all things. Well, I'm, no, I just think that... You know, I'm, we have I'm, to I'm be, joking you. Lighten up. I think we have to be patient with <laughs> with the human um, frailty and know that it sometimes takes generations, like was the case in the elimination of slavery in the 19th century. But it could have uh, happened in the 18th the, if people would have come together and if people would have... I'm saying there's two ways of approaching it, drop by drop or open the floodgates, and the only difference between the two is the courage of the consequence, how wet you're going to get. By well, the way, who would, who would Christ vote for? Who would Muhammad vote for? Who would Buddha vote for? Who would Confucius vote for? Who would Maimonides vote for if they were alive today? Well, that's a, that's a matter of conjecture. But I I would let me just make a comment though on this the point that you're making about drop by drop or floodgates. The history of the human race is that when the floodgates open, revolutionary violence is what ensues. And I'm saying Whether we that, have revolutionary violence, but it's not called revolutionary. It is called construct, uh, constrictive violence. You have 165 million overweight Americans. You have an epidemic of diabetes in children. You have children for the first generation in American history who will die before their parents. That is violence of an insidious nature, but it is not being declared violence. That is a genocide against our future. I will open the floodgate if I can help save those kids' lives. Drop by drop, they will be dead. There's also this other notion. Should we wait until everyone is sick, dead, depressed, and bankrupt before we say, maybe we should put this into a little higher gear? That's some of my only personal perspective. It's not a challenge to your own. Well, no, I, 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 I think we're, we're mixing apples and oranges there. I was just addressing this point about why people don't act more concertedly. I mean, it's, it's Thomas Jefferson's observation in the Declaration of Independence, you know, the great irony is that people will long endure tyranny. People have an extraordinary capacity to habituate to conditions that are both dehumanizing and oppressive. Uh, and when they finally change them, what tends to happen is a convulsion of, of violence and then often the replacing of an inhumane system with another brutalizing system in one way 
um, or another. Doesn't have um, to be. That doesn't have to be. Remember, it doesn't have to be, but it's it seems to be a uh, a a a fairly consistent pattern in human affairs. So people having a long genetic memory do not change an existing system very easily or quickly, and they will endure its injustices for the sake of stability. Until someone changes the paradigm. Until and someone changes. That's why I pointed, so I was just going to say, what fundamentally off alters the, the, the system itself and people's willingness to change is the emergence of a new value system. And that's why what we're doing here at Wisdom University is we're working a lot with Paul Ray. We're, we're having conferences. We're doing as much as we can around the country to alert people that there is, in fact, a whole new value proposition that's emerging. But when they do the polling of these cultural creatives, they find that almost across the board, the cultural creatives think that they're the only person on their block that believes as they do. Um, because of the control by the traditionalists and the modernists of the media, of the political structures, of the major institutional structures of the country. And we believe that if, you, if there's, um, Gary, if there's one out of three American adults that agree with what you're saying, but they don't know it, one of the clarion calls in terms of mobilization over the next five to ten years um, while there's still a bit of time to t make some constructive change in, in a conscious way as opposed to being victimized by catastrophic change, like we saw with Hurricane Katrina, for example, is the mobilization of the people who actually agree with you. How can we help them connect the dots? How can we get the 60 million American adults now that would believe what you say to be true to come together rather than sitting there in their living room thinking, gee, there's nobody else around here that agrees with me, but I, I can be active in my local anti-globalization group or in my SPCA group or my women's group or, you know, whatever kind of group, but work more privatistically and in a non-networked way. And I think that's the real tragedy of 9-11. If you saw what happened beginning in Seattle in 1999, with the anti-globalization movement, it was the first time in human history where citizen groups around the world organized themselves in such a way that wherever the World Bank met, wherever the IMF met, tens of thousands of concerned citizens laid siege. And it didn't matter whether it was happening in Washington or whether it was happening in in, in Europe somewhere, or is happening in, in Southeast Asia, the World Bank and the IMF, for the first time in, 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 in human history, found themselves confronted by an organized, mobilized citizen network. And, Jim, I and that's was, one I, reason Jim, why I think that the tragedy of 9-11, and I believe that there was active collusion on the part of the Bush administration with 9-11, is because they saw this was happening and they needed to put in place basically the beginnings of a national security state. Well, and we, we got the national security state. We're coming out of time. I was in those movements. Talk about Miami. I'm there marching. Here is my concern. I respect what you're doing. You and the other people through the Gorbachev Foundation and the Wisdom University, you're right on this. 
Let us not differentiate. Let us differentiate, though. Ninety percent of the people that I've been with in these marches, all of them, have been teenagers or long-time activists. Then none of them were policymakers or opinion leaders. None of them were from those gated communities. None of them were for the the religious organizations. Their leadership. We must also find a way to reach out to the people who cause change to occur and ask them, would you lend your ear? Would you lend us your support? Then laws can be passed and we can withdraw from the position we're in. Jim, thank you very much for being on today. Uh, Dr. Jim Garrison, my guest, part of our conversations with Remarkable Minds. <laughs>